This episode of Author Stories is brought to you by the Writing Mastery Academy. Founded by Jessica Brody, author of the best-selling plotting guide, Save the Cat Writes a Novel. The Writing Mastery Academy features online, on-demand writing courses, including the official Save the Cat Writes a Novel companion course, novel fast drafting, crafting dynamic characters, and productivity hacks for writers to name just a few, plus monthly live webinars on various writing topics. Go to jessicabrody.com slash hank to learn more and get your first month of unlimited access to all the content for just $6. That's right, just $6. jessicabrody.com slash hank. You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret White. Terry Brooks. Sheena Kamal. Matthew Quick. J.T. Ellison. Walt D. Williams. Brad Ford. Corey Doctorow. Brandon Sanders. Robin Mom. Ernest Klein. Jim Butcher. Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Lissa Evans on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called V for Victory. And, you know, if you love historical fiction the way I do, uh, this is a must have uh, for your uh, to be red pile. You know, if you have a, a comfy reading chair or you like to read in bed uh, at night before going off to sleep, this it, you need to have this beside you where you can pick it up and and just fall in love with the story the way I have. Um, welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you very much indeed. Well, Lisa, we begin each show with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Oh, goodness me. Um, I come from a family where we all read a lot. I mean, a lot. I, I mean, I, I, I was in my teens before I realised that most families don't actually read through meals. But I think the first time I wrote, the first time I really remember was I was about six and we were supposed to write a story in class. And I wrote a story about a hippo called Fred. I have no idea why. But I actually illustrated it. I'm not, I'm not a, in any way artistic, but I drew a picture of a hippo at the top. And I drew an arrow pointing to his head and I wrote Fred's head by it. And I remember thinking, that is so funny. That, that is the funniest thing that's ever been written. And I remember then thinking, oh, it's lovely writing. It's lovely writing something funny, especially. So that was a, a memory of my first story, really, but also my first joke, because a lot of what I write has humour in it. That, I love that so much, and I, I have this vivid picture uh, of meal times with everyone reading, and uh, I, I love that so much. <laughs> yes. So, Lisa, when did you know that you were going to be a writer? Um, you know, sometimes uh, it's it's sometime in adolescence, and this this need to tell stories comes out, and then invariably. You know, we get sidetracked with, uh, you know, career and raising families and all of that sort of thing. But but the love of writing comes back around uh, to us. And, and I know you have an interesting story of how you came to that. But but when did you first know that you this was something that you were going to do? I have notebooks stretching back to when I was about seven years old. I think I was always aware that 
writing would probably be for me the most important thing I could ever do would be the best thing I could ever do stories and reading has always infused my life and I've always written stories so when I was at school you know writing writing stories in English classes was always the thing I enjoyed most and I wrote the school magazine and when I say that I did I wrote the the whole school magazine and then (laughs) I, I, I wrote the whole school pantomime but but I didn't I think I I had no idea how one would become a writer or or sell a novel. We didn't know anybody like that. And I actually went to university to study medicine. And um, I carried on writing odd things in notebooks while I was there. But that was, you know, five years study and I became a doctor. And and while I was, I I split my time between doing medicine and being in a comedy group, um, I had no ambitions beyond medicine at that point but it became rapidly clear once I'm qualified that um I really did not enjoy it in any way and was scared stiff most of the time and I spent four pretty unhappy years feeling very inadequate as a junior doctor and and then I I decided practically overnight that I I had to give up really you couldn't hate something that much and be any good at it and there's no point in being a bad doctor so (laughs) so I gave up medicine and I thought well what can I do I'm you know I was 25 by this point I wasn't qualified for anything else the only thing I had done apart from that was writing sketches and performing in a sketch show and I'm not much of a performer but I've written reasonably funny stuff I suppose but um what I ended up doing was applying for a job in BBC Radio in their life entertainment department, uh, which is a department that makes everything from sketch shows to adaptations to quiz shows to panel shows. And I got a job in that. And for five years, I was a radio producer. And I think during that time, what I learned was editing, um, which is probably the single most useful thing any writer can ever learn how to make something concise in radio you obviously you only have the words and and therefore they've got to be as concise as perfect as possible and constructing jokes as well is something that's very precise the the rhythm of it the musicality of it is all inherent in a joke and so I learned to to edit the writing of others and uh that was a, a useful skill stored up and I was still writing old things in notebooks but not doing anything not doing anything longer and I went to TV this all sounds very long but it was really because I didn't actually start writing my first book till I was 39 and by that time I'd been in telly about five or six years producing and directing but I had sort of had enough of that really um television is staffed by very young enthusiastic people and by that point I was feeling old and not very enthusiastic and I think my, the thing I'd always wanted to do by then was calling me. And I think what the key was that I found something I wanted to write about. And a very, very good friend of mine had died and he had, he had lived next door to me. We had been very good pals and I inherited his pets and um, took two very fat cats. And I wanted to write about about grief, really. And I ended up writing a novel, which I suppose you could call a funny book about grief that does sound weird but it was a, a tribute to my friend and it was a tribute to that feeling of stuckness you get when you're when you're grieving and about how people move on and I think that was what tipped me into writing at, at 39 something I really wanted to write about and from from then on that was my main aim I still did television for a while because you know I had to eat 
and then I, I subsequently you know, married married quite late and had kids so you know supporting the kids was part of it but from then on I would consider myself a writer that's quite a long story sorry no no that was perfect um listen you, you mentioned that that funny book about grief um in in reading your work and in, in v for victory uh, especially you you have an interesting way of taking a a situation a time period a a, a photograph of uh, of life during a particular time and allowing us to look at it in a different way um it you know the, there's there's a lot of historical fiction, especially about this time period, that's out in the market right now, and we're having, um, you know, definitely a, a, a renaissance if you want to look at it that way for for this type of of time period literature, um, and and the reading public definitely has a hunger for this, um, but very few books allow us to look at it through a little different lens. Like there, there's lots of serious. Uh, historical fiction about World War II, um, but very few of those allow us to to let that side of our humanity come through. Um, yeah. What is it about humor um, that you find so interesting? And uh, you know, is is it is it wrong for us to try to find the humor in uh, you know stressful situations? Uh no, because <laughs> it is, and it's. I think for me, this is the way I write, and 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 that's another perhaps a reason uh, why I didn't really start writing till later on. I was searching for the way I write, and the way I write is to find humour in everything. And that doesn't mean peppering it with jokes. Um, there are great stretches of the book where funny things are not happening, but if there is a chance to show irony or to have some wit in dialogue, that is what I will always go for, and. It fits very well with a time in which people did find the, the human situations because otherwise you simply couldn't go on. And, they, you know, that's more than that dark wit um, that you hear in, in, in uh, writing about authentic writing about the Second World War really inspired me. I mean, I, I, I think a lot of it is to do with the amount of research I did, because although I'd always been interested in what's known as the home front here, I don't know whether the phrase is known in the US, that's basically civilian life during the sure. Second World War. And I had read, I, I, I read a book on that one very um, early on. When I was about 13, my father was given a book called How We Lived Then, which was life in the home front. And my, my father said to my sister who bought it for him, why do I need to read that? I, I lived through it because it was he had he'd been a young man in the war. But I took the book and I read it and reread it and it fascinated me. It's a it's a book full of detail, things like, you know, what would be in your Christmas stocking, what would you cook, where would you go on holiday, how would you feed your pets, that kind of fact-based stuff that kids love. And I absorbed that and um it gave me a kind of baseline of knowledge so that when I started researching properly for a book. I already had that that feeling that was almost like memories of my own. So I read a lot of stuff that was written during the Second World War. That was my sort of gold standard. Books that was were written and published during the Second World War, often by emergency workers, um, wardens, um, firemen, ambulance workers. And because they were written and published so quickly, they were so authentic. And the language, you, you know, the language in them is 
is absolutely right and the observations are what people saw and i love that and what you're not getting is you're not getting considered memories where stuff is filtered out you are getting the the immediate impact of what's going on and for me that helped enormously because once you start viewing a period through the eyes of the people who lived in it i think the plots then become inherent for that period you don't glue stuff on you you live it and and my plots often change from what i think they're going to be because i realize that the characters wouldn't do that they would do this because i'm, I'm sort of living through the period with them so um i think you know that the humor and the the different way of looking at it comes from my my research as much as from my own uh way of writing listen um were you always a, a fan of historical fiction or was it just this time period specifically that intrigued you? Just this time period, really. And in fact, I wrote, um, yes, because my first book set in this time period, I wanted to write about, I thought, been thinking about writing a book about behind the scenes in television. And then I thought, well, who care about that? And then I started, um, I was reading a, a, a biography of a film star between the walls and he had, he was called George Arliss, now forgotten now. But he had said, once work begins in the studio, nothing outside is of any relative importance. And I thought, oh, God, that's so true. Because when you're in a telly studio, the most pathetic, trivial things seem massively important. And I started wondering whether that had been the case when the world outside was falling apart. You know, during the Second World War, with bombs smashing on the studio roof, did it still take 12 people to decide on the colour of a, the leading man's tie? And I started researching, and yes, indeed, it did. You know, that, that behind-the-scenes feeling was exactly the same. And I thought, oh, I can write about this then. This is my world. This is writers. This is actors. This is scripts. But I can set it in, in a world that I'm interested in. So I wrote uh, a book about uh, called their, the, their Finest Hour and a Half, which ended up as a film, actually, called Their Finest, about making a film during the Second World War. And then I went on to write another book about it called Crooked Heart. And that was the start of a loose trilogy, which V for Victory ends. So you can read them all on their own. But the second book in the trilogy is set in the 1920s. And that was a huge leap for me. Yeah, uh, that was a that was a big jump to, to, to go to another era that I hadn't thought about. So I don't think I'm a natural writer of historical fiction. I'm just a natural writer of World War Two fiction. Right. Um, you mentioned that V for Victory is the ending of a loose trilogy that begins with Crooked Heart. When you began writing Crooked Heart, did you see um, that that there would be um, that this would end up being a trilogy? Could you see past the book you were writing to what this this meta story would become? Only when I got to the end of it, that quite often happens. I'm so I'm living so deeply in the in the characters' heads that sort of I want to know what happens next. So I got to the end of Crooked Heart and thought, oh, I would like to write a sequel. But Crooked Heart begins with a prologue with a little boy living in a large house in London with a an elderly lady who's a former suffragette. And it's a it's it's a it's a short prologue, but it's very in, in, a very intense one. And the influence of this suffragette who dies at the end of the prologue infuses the whole of the rest of the book and goes on into V for Victory. And I realised that actually I needed to write the story of this suffragette first. So that's why I jumped backwards to the 1920s and I wrote about former suffragettes. I wrote about what what do you do next when you change the world? You know, what what, what what's next for, for people who have who have moved and shaken everything around them? And uh, so 
no, it, it was incremental. I, I started with one book and then realised that gradually there was more in it and I wanted to tell their story. I, I wanted to revisit them. It's lovely returning to characters and, and revisiting them because you've already got their voice and that's so nice. That's so lovely. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website. Developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates, PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting, and we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. When you're... um when you finish crooked heart and you, and you realize that, that this is going to be a loose trilogy, um, each of your books stand alone perfectly. Uh, you can pick up V for victory without having read the other two. And it's a completely satisfying novel. When you go back and pick up the other two, there are threads that run through there that, uh, you know, are, are, are definitely a payoff for the reader. Um, did you set, rules for yourself or um constraints to to work within when when you started conceptualizing how this series would go and uh you know how do you maintain the thread uh throughout the books while also ensuring that they are satisfying reads on their own um when i i'm so pleased you said that about v for victory because uh, that making that a standalone was obviously the most difficult as the as as the last book of three but the 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 biggest difficulty for me was um when i went jump backwards to the book called old baggage which is about this suffragette i had already right. written lots about her in crooked heart so i had to make a kind of bible of the woman is called matty um, a matty bible everything about her i had written in crooked heart i was jumping back 15 years so it all had to work and that and that was re- that was really hard because I, I had to think what what would it be like for somebody to read old baggage and then go on to crooked heart? You don't want to stumble. You don't want to you don't ever want a reader to think, oh, that's not right. That doesn't work. And um so all the 
so all the facts I had about her, I had to make sure was smoothly incorporated. And in fact, the only one that actually proved a problem was for some reason in Crooked Heart, I had given her a doctorate. And that was <laughs> <I started laughs> hurting myself because that was so difficult to explain. It was such an un, unusual thing for a woman in, in the 1920s. So she's a remarkable woman. And that was quite hard. But when it so, and when I moved forward, I had all those characters from two books. And although there were constraints and I had to simplify things, the biggest pleasure was looking through and thinking, oh, who do I want to write about again? Which characters do I want to bring back? Which of the little girls in, in Old Baggage? Because there's a girls club on Hampstead Heath and Old Baggage with girls between 12 and 18. Which of those little girls do I want to see as grown-ups during the Second World War? And that was a, that was a real pleasure, picking and choosing. So I think the only real constraints were, were I had to not write about as many people as I'd like to. It would have been wonderful to have loads of them coming back and, and picking, choosing and seeing remarkable fates for them all. And I couldn't do that. So some of them it, will never know. <laughs> right. In, in V for Victory, um, you take a, uh, a slogan, uh, if you will, um, that that we see on lots of uh, wartime uh, posters and, and things like that, the, the V for victory um, sentiment. Um, and you, you, there's a sort of uh, a, a pun, a, a play on words there uh, with the character of V. Uh, it, <laughs> yes, was that, that was that intentional? Oh, well, as soon as I thought of the title, I, I, it made me laugh. And I thought, actually, I could have spelled it V-double-E, which is her nickname. And uh, my, my, my publisher went, no, 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 no. Um, so, yes, it's a pun that makes me happy. And I'm glad you like it, Hank. But, um, oh, I, I love puns. You, you don't <laughs> even do know. I. So do I. But it's not. I, I find it satisfying, but it's it's not inherent in it. <laughs> But I like, like like the thought it's there for anyone to spot. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, and and as the writer, sometimes you just need these little inside jokes that that maybe they only entertain you, but that's enough. Absolutely, absolutely. yes, you're absolutely <laughs> right. With that. I'm sure there are loads of jokes in my books that nobody gets except me. <laughs> and that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, sometimes that's you have to do something for yourself. <laughs> that's right. So it's it's late 1944 um, when the when the book opens. Um, set the stage for us. What what's going on in this book? Where do we meet the characters and and uh, you know how do we drop into the story? Well, when I when I started this book, I had already written two books set during the Blitz, which is right at the beginning of the the what the Second World War. It's it's from 1940 to 41, and I had done all my research. On the beginning of the war because I, I never want to know more than my characters so although I knew a little about just through general knowledge about the end of the war I hadn't done any intensive research on it and the more I read about it the more fascinating it was it was an incredibly grueling time to be a Londoner the war was clearly there to be won it was going to happen um, D-Day had happened in 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 mid-1944 and we pick up our characters um, in, blimey, I think it's I think it's September or October, and so everybody knows the Allies are going to win. It's going to happen, but it's it's taking a dreadfully long time. And meanwhile, London is getting an unprecedented battering, because after the the Blitz, there had been several years where there was some bombing, but nothing very consistent. And then 
in summer of 1944, Hitler's first secret weapon came along, which people had been predicting for a long time, called the, the V1s. And the V1s were pilotless planes that were sprung into the air in uh, Europe. And they were almost like clockwork, except they, they, they had you know, petrol engines. But they, they would run for a certain amount of time and then known as doodlebugs or they were known as um, robot, ro robot planes. And they were absolutely terrifying. I only write about them briefly. The, the whole book starts with, with a doodlebug. Um, the, the last one that people have heard for a, a long time. And during that summer of Doodlebugs, I've seen descriptions of what it was like to be in London. Because between the engine cutting out and it hitting the ground, there were about 12 seconds. And if it cut out directly overhead, it was quite likely that the bomb would at least fall near you. If it passed over you, you would be safe. And the whole of London was listening. There is a cartoon of uh, people walking on the street with all with one enormous ear tilted up to the sky. And I've seen a fantastic description of somebody saying, you were listening with every part of yourself, like, like a cat listens with its fur. And the tension was indescribable. And then just as the, uh, Britain had found a sort of defence for V1s, they had, them, they had the RAF shooting them down over the channel, they had barrage balloons getting in their way, and they had guns um, hitting them from the coast. Just as they'd sort of got the measure of V1s, another secret weapon came along called V2s. V2s were rockets. There's one in the Imperial War Museum in London, and it looks exactly like a sort of Tintin rocket, a cartoon of a rocket almost. Huge, about sort of 20 foot high. Um, and they were shot up into the air, um, again in, in German-held territory. They went up into the strat stratosphere two miles high i believe and then they would drop down and the thing about uh v1s was uh, v2s were the, the rockets were that if you were underneath you never heard them so death would come instantly you couldn't wait for them most people if you weren't underneath and you heard a crack and a boom somewhere else and the, the spreading pressure wave if you were underneath them you were probably dead and the, there were two, three, four, landing on London every day for, for months, between about September and about March. Many of them, you know, they, they may have fallen in the river or they may have hit waste ground or they may have got lucky and exploded in the air. But nevertheless, destruction was incredible. And more than death, they also brought the most incredible destruction of property. So, so a V2 would not only raise a, a street beneath it, but would knock the roofs off about square half mile of housing. So the devastation was incredible and the dust and the noise and the misery. And meanwhile, rationing was at its worst. And um, the, the winter of 44, 45 was the coldest winter in living memory. And there were fuel shortages. So it was utterly miserable. People were slogging along and and having the most rotten time and these uh bombs particularly targeted london so outside london people didn't really understand quite how awful everything was and and in fact when soldiers would come home on, on leave or perhaps be liberated from prison camps they'd come back and they wouldn't be able to believe what was going on in london what what their relatives had had suffered so that's the the scene at the beginning of the book it's it's 
victory is coming, but it's desperately slow. And we meet a young boy called Noel, who's um, nearly 15, who lives with someone he says is his aunt in a house in Hampstead Heath, a boarding house with several lodgers. In fact, she's not his aunt. They're not related in any way. And they've met in Crooked Heart. Um, and they, they, the plot of Crooked Heart is a little bit like Paper Moon in a way. They, they, they've been scammers. They've been collecting for fake charities in Crooked Heart. Now they've gone respectable. They're living in a house in, in London, trying to make ends meet and trying to stay under the radar because if anybody finds out who they actually are, then, then there might be trouble. So there's, there's tension there and there's also um, House Full of Lodgers and, and uh, L London, which is looking just dreadful. So that, that's, the, that's the mixture at the beginning. Lissa, I don't believe that you are old enough to have witnessed uh, World War II for yourself <laughs> as an adult. Not quite. Yet, yet your, your books and your description just talking to you um, is so vivid. Um, how did you prepare yourself to write this series and, and what did you do to get the not only the the um, the descriptions of places and and things like that correctly, but the the feeling um, you describe you describe the way people felt and uh, that description of, you know, the the cartoons of the 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 people with one big ear you know those are those are details that that really get you know down to your marrow um that make you feel like you're there w what do you do to prepare to to convey these the the setting and the feeling that people have so that when you sit down to write it just flows out of you i i research immersively but i research a lot uh, i a lot of contemporary accounts and there was a there was a thing called mass observation in uk which was set up uh before the war there was a young anthropologist called tom harrison who came back from papua new guinea having having spent a lot of time with tribes in papua new guinea writing down detailed observations about them and he came back to the uk and thought what if i did the same in britain isn't that what we need to do don't we need to see what 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 people are are doing and saying in the same amount of detail that we need to study ourselves and he set up a group called mass observation which would partly was asking people to keep diaries and send them on a monthly basis to a central office and partly observers would go out on particular days like the coronation of george VI, and see what people were saying and doing and when the second world war began the ministry of information knew about tom harrison they said carry on doing it because that will help us know what people are thinking, what people are saying, what is actually going on, what the morale is. So the mass, obs mass observation published various books. They, 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 they published a book about how people were living through the Blitz. They published diaries. They published detailed conversations. And these books are absolutely amazing. And they would turn up the most unexpected gems. For instance, you know, I was reading Living Through the Blitz. This was years ago now before I wrote my first uh, Second World War book and there's just a description of a young woman whose house has been bombed and she survives it's a big old mess and she goes to sleep with the neighbours that night she's given a blanket and told she's in shock but what she is actually feeling as she lies in bed is absolute euphoria because she survived she's thrilled she feels as if she's going to sort of burst through the roof and dance through the air because she she has survived this bomb and she kept on saying I, I, I'm alive 
I've been bombed and I'm alive. And I thought, gosh, what an extraordinary thing. That doesn't mean everybody felt like that, but one person felt like that. And therefore, many people will have felt like that. And that sort of unexpected moment is, is, is so important. But there's also descriptions that have been forgotten which you stumble across so you know the sound of bombers which you know we've all seen films and we've all seen footage of it but i kept on coming across the description of bombers um coming across saying oh they had a stammering beat a stuttering beat the uneven throb of bombers and i thought well what's, what's that about and it turns out the german bombers had something called an unsynchronized engine i don't know anything about that but it meant that they had an uneven beat which was noticed and which was sinister and Everyone at the time noticed it, and it's sort of been forgotten. And it's even in the Graham Greene novel, he talks about the bombers coming over, coming over the estuary, and it sounds as if they're saying, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And you think, God, that's the most amazing detail. And, and, and so I pick up stuff like that. It's like, it's like sort of, you know, pick, picking up beautiful leaves in autumn and pressing them and keeping them. And I don't necessarily use them, but they're there and they make me realise the range of what people spot and the and the unexpected reactions that you get. And also, I also, you know, pick up vocabulary as well. I, I always, odd words that are useful that people said at the time, odd vocabulary, which might be unexpected. So I've got lots of files on my computer with lots of different details in them, but it's immersing oneself, I think. I could talk for hours about this. Sorry. Well, listen, like we mentioned earlier, V for Victory is uh, is the the uh, the conclusion of this loose trilogy, but it absolutely stands alone uh, on its own. On on its the the story is is completely self contained. Um, if someone is just coming to this, um, would you uh, recommend that they go back and read? Um, the other two books, Crooked Heart uh, and uh, and I forget the name of the second I, one. Uh, old Baggage. I do. The old Baggage. Old Baggage. It was on the tip of my tongue. That's old Baggage. Right. And and then uh, V for Victory or um, or would you like uh, for them to come in with this and then go back and read the other two? If anybody reads the book, I'm delighted, Hank, because you know, <laughs> if, I had, if I was able to instruct a reader, which we all want to do, don't we? I would say read Crooked Heart first, then read Old Baggage then read V for Victory, which is the order I wrote them in. But but it really doesn't matter. And if you read V for Victory first and then go back to the others, you will discover things and perhaps it will have a, a, a different sort of impact uh, that I haven't realised. And maybe it's better for all I know. So uh, there, there's the way I wrote them or there's any way you want to read them, really. Right. Well, we'll put links to all three in the show notes of this episode so uh, readers can decide how they want to enter the series. But however you do, uh, it will be a satisfying experience, I promise. Um, we're going to put links to these uh, in the show notes of this episode. Lissa, if if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do and connect with you, is there a place where they can do that online? Yes, there is. I've got a, I've got a website, lissaevans.com. All one word, lissaevans.com. And um, there's, there's, uh, you could, you can email me there, or and there's, li there's links to my books, and uh, I think, I think there's some notes on one book. I haven't been keeping up to date as much as I should, but nevertheless, yes, you can contact me there. Excellent. We'll put links there as well for that. Listen, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. And thank you, Hank, for your lovely questions. I really enjoyed it. Could have talked all night. Thank you. 
Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no further than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.